Welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles, 2005. I know last night listening to uh, the sermon, gaining some things, I went home and I did what I was asked to do. I looked back on some of the feasts that we've had. And I can think back in, uh, I guess back in the 60s, 64, 65, that area when we all came together at Big Sandy and we tended. And it was such a tremendous blessing to be a family there. And I can think of one that I thought of that's not the greatest feast ever, and that was the only time we went to the Bahamas. And it was really a trial. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I got a whole lot out of it other than that uh, you don't take children, <laughs> young teenagers, if they're big enough to walk up to a, uh, a bar, you don't take them down there because if they can be seen, they can have something to drink. And so we spend a lot of time keeping children corralled when you have several young teenagers. It's uh, it's a challenge. <laughs> and you actually sometimes forget what you're there for. And I also sat down and wrote down some goals. I hope everyone else did too because it's important that you have to ask yourself, why am I here? And why did I come to the feast this year? I think of one of the best feasts I can think of was the Feast of 2000 because we came to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, and it was a tremendous blessing. So I went home and I just want to say, I wrote down three things, goals to work on. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> might be embarrassing. But anyway, I'm sure that God wants us to look at those things and find out what we are here for. Why did we come to the feast? I had thought uh, about a week ago I was thinking about the sermon and I thought I needed to find a booklet. And that is the booklet, The World Held Captive by Mr. Armstrong. We live in a world, you know, we heard last night that's dying. We have a world that is just uh, full of hate. You know, we can turn to James 4, read in there and says, why is there war and fighting among you? Speaking to the church, because the church has got a war and fighting, but what about in the world too? We live in a world that is held captive. Whether you believe it or not, we are underneath the wrong government. I got a few excerpts I wanted to read from that book, A World Held Captive, not the whole book. It says, Adam had been created with the potential to be born a son of God. You really understand that? That at one time when Adam was created, he could have been God if he would have just obeyed. He had that opportunity. But he blew it, didn't he? He blamed his wife. His wife blamed the snake. But he blew the opportunity. Even though not as yet even a begotten son of God or the God's family, he had been created as potential just that. He potentially could have been God just like we have that opportunity to be God too. We have that potential. We've been called for that purpose. Once he succumbed to what? Mr. Armstrong said, once he succumbed to Satan's way, 
of choosing to do his own things. Well, that's where we stand today too, isn't it? If we succumb to doing our own way, then we are succumbing to Satan and following underneath his government and his way of life. And we heard that last night. What is the end result of that way? Death? Destruction? Is that what we want? Is that why we came to the Feast of Tabernacles? No, I don't think so. Doing his own way, in rebellion against the deliberate command of God, he became spiritually the property of Satan. So once we choose to do our own thing, once we choose to follow our own way, our own path, we actually are rejecting God's plan and God's way and accepting Satan's way because we want to follow our own thoughts. I think, I fully feel that had Adam obeyed God down the line, he would have been given an opportunity to, to see the, the tree of, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know, like he said about Christ, he would eat bread, uh, butter, and honey so that he would know to choose the good and reject the, the evil. So had we spent mankind, spent time learning how to uh, understand what is good and living under good things, then we wouldn't choose to go the wrong way, would we? You'd already know. That ain't the way to go. So man chose to follow Satan. He actually had succumbed to the government of Satan, choosing the law of, of the government, leading automatically into attitudes of self-glory, coveting, competition, desire to get rather than God's way of giving. That's what man has done. That's what happens to each one of us. A little farther on, he said, and Adam sinned, God, when Adam sinned, when Adam chose to do his own way, God closed off the tree of life. But we're living in a time right now when that tree of life is being opened, opened to us, and eventually to this world. But since that time that man died, God had to do something else. What? He had, after man was put into slavery, underneath the government of Satan, God had a plan that would relieve that. He would pay that penalty, or as a person is captured today, you know, you go out there and you, you capture a child or a person and you put them up for ransom, Christ paid that ransom for us and for all humanity. Not as this world is. This world, you know, if somebody is kidnapped, chances are great that even though you pay the ransom, you won't get the child back. And I'll guarantee you one thing. If it was up to Satan, no human being would live. Even if God paid the penalty and even gave the ransom, which he did, was Christ. Nobody would still live if Satan had his opportunity to do those things. 
I started a series, and I thought I'd cover it in one sermon, and I've been two already on covenants. And this day represents the beginning of a new covenant, doesn't it? It represents that end of the, the rule of Satan the devil, who's been in control of this world and this society since Adam's in. And we follow that same path. Hey, it's, a, it's a whole lot easier to, to go out there and, and make your own decisions, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to say, I'm right and God's wrong. Until you realize, as we were shown last night, <laughs> what's the end result? Death and destruction. Look at this world. Bosnia, Iran, uh, many other countries, even in this country. Look at what happens after a hurricane. Look what happens when a flood comes. What's the end result? If you walk Satan's path, the end result is destruction. So who is the captor? Or who is, we're the captive, but who is the captor? In 1 Peter 5, I think that's where we go, 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 9. And so, and verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Satan's looking for you. I mean, you stand out. We're told by Christ we are the light of the world. You think Satan doesn't see the light? I did a sermonette one time back in Miami. Had him turn the lights out and lit a little candle or a little lighter, you know. Is it possible in a big audience to see that one little candle or one little lighter? Sure. If it's totally black, well, that's who you are. You're the light of this world. And Satan is the one that wants you. So here we're told to be sober and vigilant. You know, putting effort. Because our adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about wanting to get a hold of you. He knows who you are. You're standing out. Whom resist steadfastly. You know, really put your effort into resisting Satan's will. The world doesn't do that right now. It's too easy to do Satan's work and Satan's way. Resist steadfastly in faith. Well, we heard like last night. We were told we go and do everything until we can't seem to accomplish anything else and they say, and, and we say, no matter what it is, well, I've done all I could. Now it's God's turn. But that's not the way, isn't it? We heard that last night. It is God first. We do all that God will first. The rest of it was going to fall in line if we just follow God. Do it in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we don't have anything more than anybody else. Christ was tempted just like you are, only he never sinned. He became the ransom that gave you 
freedom. It gave me freedom. Freedom to come here. Freedom to be part of His way of life. But, let's see, uh, but the God of all grace who has called you unto eternal glory by the Lord, by Jesus Christ, after that you have suffered a little while, make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. So we're resisting what? The powers of this world. We resist Satan, the devil. James 4, again it points it out. James 4 and verse 7 says to submit yourself therefore to God. So here we come to the Feast of Tabernacles. We're asked to look at a past. Look at the past feast. See those good things, the good parts of the feast, the things that were really made that feast important. And then build on that at this feast to make this feast even better. So he says, submit yourself to God. And if you're submitting to God, then you're going to listen to the one that God's put up there telling you to resist Satan. So submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil is the one that's got us in captivity, or the nation, the world. And God wants us to be a part of his way of life. So there is one other enemy that we have to face, and that's death. But you know, Christ ransomed us from that too, didn't he? Because if we follow his plan, we will be, we'll see death done away. That's the last enemy to be put away. So today, since this is the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, representing the beginning of a new society, a new society under Jesus Christ, it also represents the, new, the beginning of the new covenant. Now, there are two different covenants. There's a covenant of law and a covenant of promise. Let's go to James, I'm uh, sorry, Galatians. I've seen James, but I meant Galatians. Chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4. Verse 21, Galatians 4.21. And we'll see that there are two distinct covenants. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you hear the law? That's what Paul is saying. You know, there are people that say, I want to be under the law. I've got to be. Do you hear the law? You know what the law says? says if you sin, you die. It's the law of sin and death. It's the law of God, the Ten Commandments, given to those people at Mount Sinai, but it was a law that said you will keep it to the letter, and if you don't, you die. They took them out and stoned them for breaking the law. So tell me, do you desire to live underneath that law? Or do you even hear it? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by bondmaid, the other by the free woman. 
But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. So this first covenant of law was a fleshly covenant, written on tables of stone, wasn't it? I mean, they were cut and dry. You live it or you die it. But, the, but he of the free woman was by promise. Wasn't it that God promised Abraham, promised Abraham that his seed or seed would come and give man freedom? Speaking not of, of specifically of Isaac, but speaking of Christ. That was a promise offered to Abraham. It was a promise given to Abraham from his wife. But he who is... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 4, 20, 24. <clears throat> Which things are an allegory, or they're a parable. They're an allegory. For those are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendered to the bondage which is Hagar. They were bound by that law. Bound to what? Death. The last enemy to be done away with. If you break the law, you die. It was the law of sin and death. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. The world is underneath that law. They're underneath that specific thing. And if the church is saying we're underneath the law and we're going to live by the, the covenant of law, which was the old covenant, then you're going to live underneath every aspect of it, aren't you? But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Jerusalem, or the church, is our mother. You know, Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go back there for a moment. You know, Darrell refers to this many times. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you are come unto Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. That's where we're coming to. We're not coming to the physical Jerusalem, the physical covenant of law, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. That's where we're coming, which was written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect. We're to become just people too, aren't we? And we're to become perfect. So we come to Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is our mother. The church is our mother. For it is written, verse 27 of Galatians 4, Rejoice you, barren, that bear not, and break forth and cry you that prevail not. For the desolate have many more children than she which has a husband. So those that are going to be part of the family of God have 
are not family of God, those that are the desolate, those that are going to die, have more children than those that have a husband. And now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. So he's talking to the church. We are children of promise. Promise, then, being the new covenant. Promise of what? Eternal life. Promise to be a part of the family of God. Promise to be bride of Christ. You know what happens when you marry? Husband marries his wife and those two become one. The wife is, what did God say about the wife? The wife is a helpmeet. Helper works hand in hand with the husband. You know, that's what's offered to us. To be a helpmeet of Christ that in the future will help him accomplish what he's planning to do. So we're to be helpmeets, not tyrants. And Christ won't be a tyrant. He won't be, I'm the best and you're just the fourth person down the line. No, the wife is a helpmeet. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so is now. So those that are born after the flesh are going to persecute us. We've heard many times through sermons that it's going to be the church against the world. Except it's like uh, like David, you know, when he went out to fight Goliath, he told Goliath, you know, you've been a trained warrior all your life. And you come to me with all this armament and all this power and all this background knowledge. And he said, I come out here with God, with Christ. I don't need any more. So we're going to be against the world. But we have more than they have. We have God. We have Christ. So yes, we're going to be persecuted and they're going to, and they persecute us even today. Nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So if we are of the mother, the church, which is heavenly Jerusalem, then we are the free woman. And the bondwoman is not going to have a part with us, are they? She's not going to be there. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. That's the church. That's you and me. That's where we sit today. That's where we find ourselves. Hebrews chapter 4. We have something great offered to us, but we have to make a change. And I brought out a covenant of marriage in the first sermon and a covenant of the land and also spoke of a covenant that you and I made with Christ at baptism, didn't we? We made a covenant. We said, I will put my past out. I'm going to bury that in the grave. And God said, okay, I will give you what? A promise. I'll give you a covenant of promise. I will allow you, if you turn around, and if you trust me, you have faith and trust in me, not like Adam who said, well... It could be that maybe God's hiding something because he listened to somebody that wasn't supposed to listen to. No, we have a covenant of of, uh, opportunity. 
a covenant to be a part of the family. So when we came out of the grave, the watery grave, and had hands laid on us, our side was, my side of the covenant is, I'm killing my past. God's side was, I'm going to give you my spirit and give you the opportunity, a promise to be a part of the family. So we have an opportunity, an obligation, don't we? In Hebrews 4, verse 1, let us therefore fear, you know, fear to go the wrong direction. Let us fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. A promise to be what? A rest. A rest from the satanical government that we've been living under and struggling with. A struggle that we struggle with day after day after day. And Christ gives us a promise that we won't have to do that. We can enter into that 7,000 year period of rest from Satan and Satan's government. But we've got to be careful. We've got to fear. We've got to be careful that we don't slip backward and lose out on that promise, which could happen. You have to keep your nose to the grindstone, you know, shoulder to the road and nose to the grindstone. Or you could fall backward. You could listen to the wrong things. You can change your ways and follow the wrong ways. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in, in them that had heard it. So here people hear the gospel, and look at worldwide. Those people heard the gospel. It was preached to them. It was preached, there's a covenant of promise. You can enter into God's rest. But they lacked one basic element, faith, trust in God. He promises us. He promises that I will give you eternal life. You can rest from satanical world and struggling day after day in this world. But you have to have faith. In other words, others heard it. They didn't have faith. And where are they today? For we which have believed to enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, you know, it was finished. He already knew. For he spoke of a certain place on the, of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. Well, God finished the work he had planned and rested the seventh day. We have a work to do. If we do our work when the seventh day, this day which it represents the beginning of of that seventh day, that rest period, we'll be able to be a part of that. <clears throat> and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in, in because of unbelief. So God took the nation of Israel, didn't he? He gave them rest from bondage, took them out to the desert. He gave them a covenant of law, but they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. And they lost 
they lost the opportunity to be a prime nation that the whole world could look at and follow because they didn't believe God. They didn't believe Him all the way out. How about you and me? Do we believe God? Do we believe that He's offered to us the rest? That's the promise. Be part of that rest period. And again, He limited a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, it is said, today, if you will hear His voice, Harden not your heart. When Moses spoke, they didn't believe it was God speaking through him. We know that in Isaiah it says, you know, we preach, but who's going to hear our report? <clears throat> who's going to listen? Nobody's listening. We harden our hearts. We don't want to believe. Hold your place and, and go here to... Uh, what is it? Second um, Peter two verse twenty. It says, "Know this first: that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation." Are we hardening our heart and saying, "Hey, this is a private interpretation," or do we believe that God sends and picks individuals to teach? But we had several sermons down this line. Did we harden our heart against that? Or are we listening? For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. And it's not coming today by the will of a human being. I guarantee you that when we hear some of the things that come, the, cha the things that we are able to modify our lives to better honor God are coming directly from God through inspiration. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. When you hear sermons that inspire you to the greatest, to make you want to make a change in your life, it's because God is behind that. It is God that's doing it. Don't harden your heart. If you harden your heart, you're going to wind up not entering into the rest. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? So he didn't give them the rest. He spoke of another time, another rest. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. The promise. We can rest from this struggle, this hatred, this, you know, this is a covenant of promise to us. We have an opportunity to be there for the world. Because when all said and done, pointed out last night, out of six billion or so people, and only a hundred million live, only a hundred million people are going to go into that time of rest. You have an opportunity to be right there with Christ, helping them out. Because that promise is that you to be a, a bride, to be working hand in hand, to be a king or a priest, to being with Christ. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. For he that 
is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So our works are what? To change the world? Is our work to change the church? No, our work is to change me. Our work is to change ourself. The one when we look at that glass mirror and the eyes staring back at us, that's our work. To obey, to follow Christ, to make the changes in our life. And when we enter to the rest, then our work is done, isn't it? Because we're going to be God. We don't have to work at being God. We don't have to work at building uh, righteous garments. We'll have them at that time. For he that is entered in has is, is uh, entered into his rest. He also has ceased from his work, his own work, as God rendered from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. We've got to work right now. Why are you here? Why are you at the Feast of Tabernacles? To enter into that rest, aren't you? You're here to what? Hopefully, to worship the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts, aren't we? Our time and effort should be spent trying to come as close to Christ as we possibly can, humanistically, and then ask God and say, you know, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Because we're like Paul who said, I know the right way. <laughs> I can read the right way here. But why do I always find I'm going the wrong direction? I'm going backward most of the time. Sometimes if you, you know, don't you feel like you take one step forward and two back instead of one back and two forward? You're taking one forward and two backward. Paul said that. I, in the things I don't want to do, I wind up doing those things. It's, it's a tough life. But we need to labor to enter into that rest, lest any fall after the example of unbelief. If we don't work at trusting God, we're going to be unbelieving God. And sometimes it takes a lot of effort. God said to Abraham, pack up your stuff, buddy, and take off down the road and we'll show you where to go. He said, but I got this million dollar mansion and all these people and all these servants and I got a good cook stove and I've got all this stuff. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, all right, okay, so be it, I'll do it. And that's what he wants from us. If we hear God tell us to do something, and that's part of that covenant, a belief, a covenant of promise, if you believe God, you'll get the promise. But you've got to believe. And if he tells you to make a change, we need to change. We need to find what's right. If we're told to sit back and look at how we can make this feast the best feast ever, then we better look at how to make this feast the best feast ever. Look at the past and say, I don't want to be in that category. You know, when I look back at the Bahamas and say, man, I didn't have time to do a lot of studying because I had too much time trying to keep up with what my kids were doing. <laughs> too much time trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever. You know, we're here try to keep up with Christ and to worship our Creator.
For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints, the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Can we hide from God? He says, I can even look that in your life. I can see what you're thinking. He tells us to capture every thought. Why? Because if we don't have a control on those thoughts, He is. And His sword will come out some way through one of His servants someplace and it will cut you to the bone, to the marrow. And saying, oh yeah, I did that. How did that guy know I did that? Because God inspired it and said, look what you're thinking. Look where you're acting. Look what you're doing. So God's Word, God's Word is that sword. So what do you think on a daily basis? God knows. And so the things that you need most, so when you go to Sabbath services and you hear a sermon or a sermonette, and you say, why is God picking on me? He's not picking on you. He loves you. But He wants you to make a change. So He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're doing. And so His Word then cuts into you. And God's not picking on any individual because He loves all of us. So He's picking on all of us. Because He says, I love you, therefore I am going to correct you. When you make a mistake, I'll be there. If He's not, then you better think back, well, why wasn't I corrected for that mistake I made? Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe I'm not going to be a part of that family. So God knows your thoughts and your heart. He's made us a promise. Do you believe it? Do you know what that promise is? Neither is there any creature that is not manifested in His sight. I know all of them, He says. I know everybody. I know all the creatures that I've made. But all things are naked and open unto the eye, unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. God, we know we can't cover ourselves up. We can't hide ourselves in a hole or up in space or down under the ground. We can't hide ourselves with clothing or whatever. We can't disguise ourselves so that God can't know who I am. Sometimes we want to do that. We want to disguise ourselves from each other, and it, which is easy. You know, we can do something that uh, looks good to other people, but God knows, doesn't He? You can't hide. You're naked in His sight. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, which is Christ, that is passed into the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What is your profession? No, God gave you a profession, didn't He? To be a king, a priest, and to be the bride of Christ. That's your profession. To be a part of what He's doing. So we need to hold tight to that. We've been told time and time again, put on holy, righteous garments. Look at yourself. You're naked in God's sight. Are you even hiding from yourself? Playing hide and go seek? I brought that out one time in a sermonette, I think. Um, the guy that wrote uh, Men Are From Mars and you know, Men Are From Venus, Mars, whatever. 
Anyway, he said he was out there playing hide-and-go-seek, and this one boy, he really could hide. He really could hide. And they looked and looked and looked and couldn't find him, and it got dark and time to eat, so everybody went and ate, and he was still hiding. Is that what we are? It's getting close to time to be a part of the bride of Christ. Are we still hiding from God or trying to hide from God? Are we still playing hide-and-go-seek? Our profession is something we have to work at. It just doesn't come natural. So when we're told, look at the past feast, did we look at the past feast and say, man, I don't want to be that way. Now, this was a good feast, but if I made a few changes, this could even be a better feast, be a most fantastic feast. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You know, we, Christ is there. He is waiting for you to come to Him. He understands your physical problems. He's tempted in all ways as, as you are. But He didn't sin, did He? So He knows. He lived here. He became a human being so that He could say, I know what you're going through. All you have to do is come and say, Christ, help me. Uphold me. Help me to make this day. The world, if they would just say, forgive me and help me, could enter into God's rest. Brethren, we want to enter into that rest, don't we? That's the promise. A promise we read right here of entering into that rest, period. No struggle anymore. So he, being a human being, knows what you're going through. He knows the hot and the cold. He knows the pulls of this nature of this human being. Now we can say, well, Christ never was forced with the television and all these, you know, for you men, all these young women and you women who look out there and say, all the women on the TV are just this one side. They're all thin. They all have a, a, a good shape. There's nobody like me. So it makes you discouraged. And the men have to look out there and say, let's look at my wife. She don't look like that guy <laughs> or that woman. Sometimes some of the guys are saying, look like that guy. Because they have that too. We, we see that happening today. <clears throat> we live in a society. Did Christ live with that? Sure he did. He said in all points he was tempted. He knows. He came and lived a life so that he could say, just come and ask and I will help you if you believe, if you trust. But we sometimes get unbelief and say, well, I can't believe that. So he was tried in every way we were. And he can't he can be called upon. He's there, willing and ready to help. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come to Christ. We can ask Him for help and strength. He's been there. He's been down that line. He knows the problems hasn't So there is two laws. 
there's a law of the covenant of the flesh. And if we want to live underneath that law, we better find out what's the requirement of that. Because the end result is death. Now, the Jews live that way. They have all these do's and don'ts. And, you know, underneath that physical law was physical sacrifices. That means if you sin and you want to be under the law, you better find you a goat or a lamb or a turtle dove and get ready to sacrifice it because that's what's required. But you're under another covenant. No, it isn't fully established. The marriage covenant will happen on the Day of Atonement when we become at one with Christ. But we are under a covenant of promise right now. God promised you life, didn't He? So you're underneath that promise to have life. The promise is a guarantee. The covenant of promise is a guarantee by God. It's a guarantee to be a part of the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11. Wherefore, remember that you being in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised by them which are called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand. So, speaking about us, were we not all part of this world? Were we not all part of the captivity? We were, we were a part of that captivity. And we were called... Gentiles. I can remember in the Church of God. We used to look down on the Baptists and the Catholics and the Protestants, you know, all the Protestants and all these other people in this world because we were special. And we made the wrong decision many times. That at that time you were without Christ. And sometimes in the past, before we were given understanding, before we said, Yes, Lord, I'm killing myself, my past, and receiving that Holy Spirit. We were without Christ. The world says, yeah, we have Christ. No, they know of Christ. They don't have Christ. You have Christ. They don't. They know of Christ, but they deny that power, don't they? A power of faith and trust and obedience. At that, at a time you were without Christ, being alien from, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We really didn't have a hope and the promise, the covenant of promise, we didn't have a hope, did we? Because we were outside the world. We could die just like this world is going to die. But now, in Christ Jesus, you are sometimes, we're far off, 
are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So it's saying that Christ paid the penalty for your sin. He ransomed you from this world and gave you a promise. A promise of life, a promise of rest, a promise to be right there in the decision-making process of helping and loving human beings and teaching and training and bringing them to be part of that family. That's the promise given to us. But now in Christ Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh or close to or being a part of that promise because of Christ's sacrifice. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. What did Christ do? The old covenant? Only the high priest could go in front of the throne of God one time in a year and he had to do what? He had to bring a sacrifice for himself and a sacrifice for the people. And only once could he do that. But what did Christ do? He broke down that barrier that kept us from coming to the Father. Separated. That was separating us from God. And made it possible that we can now go right to Christ without going around through the high priest. Now we go right straight to Christ. The job of the ministry is to teach you what? To go to the minister and then go to Christ? No. Our job is to what? Teach you to go to Christ. To look for that profession that's been given to you. So Christ broke that wall down. He, he made it possible to be a part of the family of God. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. So he got rid of that fact that you have to kill an animal every time you sin. He now put his blood, because we were no longer under the law of sin and death, because we are now under the law of of promise if we trust and believe in God. And he's made it possible to have peace in me. His blood makes it possible. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the the death on the stake or the cross, having slain the enemy thereby. And who's the enemy? We've heard that before. That's Satan, the devil. He's our enemy. He's going to do every possible thing to keep you from getting that promise that God has offered to you. And came and preached peace. Oh, let's see. Yeah, came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And what I said a little earlier, because of Christ's 
life, we now can go straight to the Father. We have a promise. A promise to be able to contact our Father, who we didn't even know until Christ came and showed us the Father. They only knew of a God, one God. That God talked to them in the wilderness and brought them all the way forward until he came in the flesh. And then he could say, hey, I know what you're going through. Now you can come to me for help, and now you can go right to the Father for help. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God. Are we not living underneath that new promise right now? We are no longer strangers to Christ. We are no longer strangers with those people that are listed there in Hebrews 11. We are no longer strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. Look at Hebrews 11 and realize what those people went through. They believed and trusted God. And their names are recorded. So that we can say, hey, we're a part of that same family. We're really a part of that same family. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So we're built because we have this book. The Gospels, the New Testament, and Christ and the Old Testament of the prophets. This is what we're built upon. So we have an opportunity to be a part of that promise in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple. We're to grow into that temple that we read about in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. To grow into that temple of Christ in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So Christ can live in you. God can live you in His Spirit if you trust Him. And He's made that promise. I'll do that. But if you're unbelieving, He's not going to be there. He won't be there. Galatians chapter 3. The promise is a guarantee. The promise is a guarantee. When God gives a promise, it's guaranteed. He believes and knows if He makes that promise, He feels it's a done deal. But our unbelief can probably keep us out of that. Galatians chapter 3. Begin in uh, verse 15. Brethren, Galatians 3.15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or adds thereunto. So Christ made a covenant with us. You're not going to add to it. Isn't that what Revelation says? What happens if we add to God's Word? We're going to add to ourselves the plagues, are we not? And if we take away from God's Word and want to only have what seems good to me, what's going to happen? He's going to take away your part of the kingdom of God. You're part of a family. So even though it seems to be a man's covenant, you don't want to take away. 
now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he said, not and to seeds as to many, but as to one and to your seed, which is Christ. So God made a promise to Abraham that he would come and live in the flesh and make it possible to go into that rest period of his. And that promise is Christ. And this, I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of, uh, of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So God made a promise. And even though 430 years later he gave a covenant of law, it doesn't disannul or make of no effect that promise that Christ would come and give us peace. That Christ would come and make it possible that you would live without living underneath the captive, the captor rather, the law of Satan. Wherefore then serves the law? So then why was there a covenant of law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels at the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So the law was added to teach us, to bring us to that point that we could see that we've got to make a change. Is the law then against the promise of God? So, can we say then, because we're not under that law, is it against God? No, it's not against God. It says no. God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. So the law could never bring righteousness, he said. But the Scripture has concluded all under sin. Isn't that what it says, Romans 3, 23? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So we're, if we believe God, He's going to give us that promise, that covenant of peace, that covenant of promise. But therefore, or before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto, unto the faith, which should be afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ. It was a, a schoolmaster, a teacher. It taught us things that we should do in order to be able to come under Christ that we might be justified by faith. So you can't totally live even though you, you work at it. You're never going to completely live by that law. It's going to be difficult because you're a human being. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Once you have the promise 
You don't need a schoolmaster anymore. For you are all the children of God by faith of Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized unto Christ have put on Christ. That's where we stand. We put on Christ. And haven't we had sermons that tell us that we need to look like Christ? I think there were three sermons just very in the past few weeks back. Three sermons said we have to look like God. We have to look like Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Uh, you are all one in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and then heirs according to that promise. So we're living underneath a promise, a promise that we've got to work at, don't we? We're not living any longer underneath the captor. We have a promise. And Christ came and paid your ransom. He was not only nailed to that stake, they spit on Him, they beat Him, they pushed Him down, they cursed Him, and He did all that, and then stuck a spear in His side, and His blood came out and spilled on the ground so that you could then be heir of a promise. You could then live underneath that promise. Why are you here? Why are we here in this congregation? Just to hear somebody speak? Or are we here to be a part of a promise? A covenant that's going to be issued and offered to the world. This day, today, that we keep in a memorial of the future, a memorial of a time when the captor, those that are holding this world in captivity, is going to be bound, put away, and not able at all to influence a human being. Not one little thought will come from Him. And so you will have peace. You will have rest. And so will those that live into the millennium have rest. This day, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, is the beginning of a promise to mankind. <laughs>